0: good morning once again you guys doing well excellent good to have you with us if you have your Bibles you can turn to first Peter chapter 5 we'll be looking at verses 5 through 14 can you believe it we are finishing up this teaching series we started the Easter weekend and we've walked our way through first Peter kind of a snail's pace but it's been a wonderful study You can download any of these messages if you have the DB app on your smartphone or go to our website and listen to them. I would encourage you to do that, certainly. CrossFit, Finding Wholeness in a Broken World, the Art of War is the title of this weekend's message. Uh, As you saw, Vintage Jesus is the uh, new series that'll take us to the end of the year. I thought it would be really good for us to really uh, encounter the Jesus that most people miss as we really look at the scriptures and find out, who is this person that we're, we're celebrating, particularly around the holidays? And uh, so that's where we're headed with that study. Um, C.S. Lewis, philosopher C.S. Lewis, uh, tells us that if you've read any of his materials, anybody familiar with uh, C.S. Lewis' Show of Hands, read any of his books? Um, he, he says that our expectations as it relates to life makes a difference in how we respond to the issues of life. And for instance, he uses an illustration like this, that if I were to take you into a room, and before I took you into that room, I told you that this room is a honeymoon suite, as you went into that room, you might respond by saying, wow, it's not quite what I expected. But if I took you into that very same room, and before we went into that room, I said, this is a jail cell, you'd have a different response, wouldn't you? You'd walk in and go, wow, this is much better than I thought, let me ask you this question. When you look at the, uh, at, in general, Americans in general, would they say that life is a playground or a battleground? Which one would they say that it, it tends to be most about? It's more of a playground or life is more of a battleground? Yell it out to me. How many would say that uh, in our society today that Americans would say that life is primarily a playground? Show of hands. Okay, how many would say it's a battleground? Okay, that's interesting. And, and actually, I think because of our philosophy here in America, we actually, uh, in a general sense, would say that it's more of a playground. Life is about me. It's about my own individual freedom and my pursuit of happiness. So that would define it as, a, as kind of more of a playground. And what that does, that mindset sets us up to not be able to deal with uh, suffering very well. We don't have a good uh, theology of suffering, And, and there's a lot of Christians in America today that don't have a good theology of suffering. Hopefully, you have a better theology of suffering after having gone through 1 Peter, but the Bible gives us a great theology of suffering and says basically that the gospel is enough no matter what you're going through and the difficulties you're experiencing. If you see life more as a playground than a battleground, then you'll be greatly disillusioned. It's just a fact. The more mature you become in the faith, the more you realize that life is a battleground more than a playground. The stakes, eternal life, eternal death, heaven or hell. What's hanging in the balance? People's lives. It's serious business. There's a battle all around us. That's the reason why as we, it's appropriate that we would end the book, 1 Peter, the letter 1 Peter with the art of war because that's what he deals with here. And there is no way that you will survive spiritually apart from being deeply involved in a local church community where you are being equipped with the art of war. We have three enemies. Turn to the person next to you and see if they know what these three enemies are. Three enemies, real quick. What are our three enemies? The Bible makes it very clear to us. Okay, yell it out to me. What's uh, one of the enemies? Someone said self over here. How many were thinking self? If I could kick in the seat of the pants the person that gives me the most problems, I wouldn't be able to sit down for a week. It would be myself. Yeah, so there's that sinful nature that we have. We're born with a sinful nature. We're sinners we're by nature and by choice, but what else besides ourselves? Oh, by the way, there's a cheat sheet. I think it's on your notes there, isn't it? Did you guys notice that? So we've got, uh, then we've got society. Would you guys say that the values of our society are quite contrary to uh, the scriptures? Yeah, very much so. Very much so. And then we have an adversary, Satan. Satan. So those are our three enemies that we're we're up against. And in this study today, and by the way, you can read more about that by picking up your Bible, but more specifically, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 will give you those three enemies. But in this study, we're going to look at how we, through our sinful nature, give the devil a foothold in our lives and how society contributes to our spiritual demise. Take a look at your notes there just for a minute. So you're going to see, we're going to talk about the art of war involves knowing there is a devil. There are two equal and opposite mistakes about the devil that we need to be aware of and not fall prey to, and that's where our society contributes to our demise. And then the last point, most important point, the devil works through our own sinful heart. How many this morning would like to have a more stress-free life? (laughs) How many would like to experience more of the peace of God guarding your heart and mind in Christ Jesus? Yeah, that's where we're headed with our study. Went out with some friends. We're going to pray in just a minute. Just before we pray, though, um, went out with some friends on their razors uh, this Friday. You guys know what a razor is? It's like these little sand rails. uh, They're they're like the old sand rails or a little more deluxe version of that uh, or uh, dune buggy. We took a dirt road ride up to Crown King, so we're getting ready to take that ride up there, and the first thing that they say to us is, hey, before we get in, let's pray. I'm like, what? Is this dangerous or something? I mean, uh, and so before we get into this, let's pray, because what we're heading into is, is pretty dangerous stuff. We're dealing with the enemy, our adversary, that prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so let's, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, we know that the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. We see it all around us, we see evidence, and, uh, and, and yet you sent your son, our Savior Jesus, to disarm the demonic rulers and authorities in this fallen world, that we, that we might have life to its fullest. He has come to rescue us. Jesus has come to rescue us from our pathetic plight of perishing and has given us not just a a quantity of life but a quality of life that it, that most people only dream about. Father, may the light may the light of your son's beauty and glory be displayed Here this morning through his finished work on the cross, and may that dispel all darkness in this place and in our lives. Teach us through the study of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit the art of war against our adversary who seeks to devour us. May we be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power for your glory and our deep, durable joy. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Take a look at this great text. So we kind of pick up where we left off last week, verse 5, chapter 5, verse 5. We talked about Leadership 101, and he says here, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, the more mature ones in, in the church family. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility, that's important, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Oh, this is this is a great verse. This is a memory verse. This is a sweet verse. Let's read it together and aloud. You ready? Many of you probably have memorized this before. Verse seven. One, two, three. Casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. That's a wonderful verse. This is a. This is an invitation, that first song we sang this morning, it's an invitation to run into his arms. This is a run into his arms verse. Cast your cares, your your anxieties on him. He's inviting us to run into his arms. And the comfort of his love will be enough. Nothing compares to his embrace See, when we study the scripture, it's it's important that it's not just clear, that the truths are clear, but they're compelling, that we pray these truths where they become real to our lives. That verse alone, if it was real to your life, you would have less anxiety. He cares for you. No one cares for you more than he does. He gave his life for you. And, and that's what Peter's wanting to get across here. It's, just, it's amazing, casting all, casting all your anxieties on him. What anxieties are you struggling with? I've got a whole list. Oh, my goodness. And he's saying, give them all to him. Don't you understand? Live in the reality. He loves you. He is madly in love with you. He gave his life for you. That's a rich verse. It's the greatest love that anyone could ever know, His love for us. And to the degree, to the degree that I learn how to cast my cares upon Him and understand because He cares for me, that's to the degree I'm going to be able to deal with the stress and the anxiety and the worry that so haunts us and harasses us and hassles us in our life. He goes on and he says, being sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory... In Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, establish. Those words in itself are rich. I mean, he's just going through a whole list of this is what God's doing in your life. This is what he will do in your life. Continue to keep your eyes on him. Understand he cares for you. And then he fins with this doxology. To him, to him be the dominion forever. Amen and ever, amen. I mean, it's just... Uh, And then he goes on, and I love this, the personal greetings at the end. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. By the way, uh, he says true grace of God, and you need to be aware of the fact that there's a real cheap grace being taught in American society today. And there's also a hyper grace, that uh, it's not a healthy uh, form of grace. Grace needs to have the combination of that you and I are sinners and that we are saved, that we, that we have, that He loves us. And, but there's that first side that's not taught much, that uh, we're desperate and we're perishing. And so we tend to ignore that first part, and we emphasize the second part, and the second part is meaningless apart from the first part of that. And so there's really important that I'm a sinner saved by Christ's works, not my works. It's His work. When you understand your dire condition apart from him, the magnitude of his provision will bring unspeakable and glorious joy to your heart. The reason why we don't have the unspeakable glorious joy, we don't understand we're perishing apart from him and to the degree that we see that he has rescued us by his grace is to the degree we celebrate. I mean, we underst- when we we begin to experience all that he has for us in his grace. And so this is, true. this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. And why does it end with the personal greeting? Well, because uh, Christianity is about relationship. It's about relationship with God and relationship with one another. And uh, that's why you see so much of that in Scripture. Now let's talk about this, the art of war. I'm going to spend—I don't want to spend too much time on the front end because we want to get to the back end of this, the, the third points. But let's walk through the first two. The art of uh, war involves knowing. Number one, there is a devil. Verse eight: Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Here's your first fill in the blank. <laughs> Satan is not the opposite and equal of God, but a fallen angel, limited to one place at a time. Oftentimes I'll, I'll hear people say, hey, uh, you know, I went toe-to-toe with, with Satan. Probably not Satan, but certainly maybe some sort of demonic presence it could be. He's probably dealing with bigger people, okay? Probably not dealing with us. But there's a demonic presence. That's the point. But has a demonic presence, an intelligence network communicating and working with him. Let me walk you through some verses here. Uh, Luke 10:17 through 20, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's Jesus speaking. Now, what is he talking about there? He's talking about the fall of Satan. Most of us know that Satan was what before he became Satan? What was he? He's a fallen angel. Yeah, and so if you want to read a little bit more about this, this is a little bit of demonology, you might say, or Satanology. Uh, Isaiah 14, 12 through 17, Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19 talks about his fall. What caused him to fall? Anybody? Yell it out. Pride. That's why he's dealing with pride right here in this text. Talking about being... Understanding humility. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. And so, you see that. Revelations 12.4, it tells us a little bit of his influence. He led a third of the host of angels with him. The dude's got a lot of influence. And uh, and then in Matthew 25.41, it tells us, uh, Jesus is speaking, eternal fire is prepared for the devil and his angels and then it's fascinating because in Daniel chapter 10 verses 13 through 14 Daniel's prayer is heard in heaven so Daniel's praying and an angel is dispatched with the with the special message for Daniel the, but the angel coming with the special message to Daniel encounters opposing forces and is delayed for 21 days until Michael the archangel is finally dispatched Um, to the other angel to fight what is known as the prince of the kingdom of Persia so that the first angel can deliver his message to Daniel. Is that crazy or what? So what that is saying that there's something going on in the spiritual realm that we don't see. There's warfare happening. And he prays, waiting for an answer, doesn't come, come to find out he's encountering some sort of demonic presence this prince of Persia, they have to send Michael Michael the archangel in there to, to work him over, to get that other angel through. So it's fascinating as you begin to study Scripture and this whole thing. Now, here's the next thing. The terms and pictures in the Bible used for the devil are terrifying and pose a, a serious threat to our living life to its fullest in Christ. Why not you fill in the blank? Look up here. Because you got to get this. If he can't get you to go to hell with him, he will do everything he can to bring as much hell into your life to sideline you, to distract you, to detour you from living fullness of life and letting your light shine before men so that they can see your good deeds, so that they can come to Christ through your life. He wants to totally incapacitate you in one way or another. Now listen to some of this. So verse 8 a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's interesting that Peter would use this um, kind of metaphor because when I think of Satan, I think of more of a serpent. He's wily, he's sneaky. The Bible refers to him as a liar. And yet what he's saying here is that he's wanting to intimidate us. He uses fear as a tactic in our life. And kind of like this whole ISIL Uh, thing with these guys cutting off people's heads, it's meant to intimidate. By the way, that's all very demonic. I believe it's very demonically driven, all of that. That whole philosophy, praying to Allah and everything that that represents. When people say all roads lead to God, I don't think so. It's kind of interesting. A very demonic... Revelations 12, 3-9 refers to him as the great red dragon, John 8, 44, the father of lies and murderer, Matthew 4, 3, the tempter, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Have you ever wondered why you could present the gospel in, in most the most appealing way to your family and friends, and they would look at you and almost laugh in your face and kind of like, eh, I don't see it, I don't care for it. Well, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 tells us why. It says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. So what's going on? They're blind, and it's very, very much demonic. The God of this world, it refers to him as. The God of this world has blinded their minds. So one of the things you have to do is not only share your faith in an appealing way, but pray like crazy that God will lift the blinders off of their eyes so that they can see the beauty of Christ that you see and you are experiencing. So if he does that to... Non-believers, how does he deal with believers? Eleven three, Second 2 Corinthians 11.3. Just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, I'm afraid that somehow your hearts may be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So here's what he's working in your life. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he's gonna try to make the things in this world something in creation to be more appealing to you than the creator. That's what he's up to. He's going to draw your heart away and make your job, your family, your business, you know, your pursuit of something in creation as a more important pursuit than him. That's what he's up to. And he does a pretty good job at it. I find myself being more dominated, my thoughts being dominated, and my emotions being stirred, and my actions being uh, driven more by the things in creation as opposed to the creator. You know, when I get more excited about a football game than I do about worshiping God, there's something wrong with that. There's something happening in my heart or any number of things. Whatever you get more excited about, more so than God, the excitement of God, then you're missing God in that. There's something happening. There's some sort of blindness. There's a deception. I mean, think about it. That, that there's something in creation that's more satisfying than the Creator. It's not, it's not true. He, he, is, he is our most satisfying reality. There's nothing more satisfying than he is. And all that we have in creation are gifts from God and pointers to God. And they can be opportunities to worship God, certainly. But too often we get drawn into that. So that's what he's up to. Luke 11, 21, he's the strong man. Ephesians 2, 2, the prince of the power of the air and the spirit who works in those who are disobedient. So it's even saying that those who are disobedient... Does the spirit working in them, the holy, the, uh, the, this demonic presence, let me say that again, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who works in those who are disobedient, Ephesians two. 2. Okay, so, so the art of war involves knowing there is a devil, we see that, Scripture's very clear about that, and, but there's two extremes that we'll, we can fall prey to. There are two equal and opposite mistakes about the devil. So it says in verse 8, be sober-minded, so be in touch with reality is what it means there, and then be watchful. Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20, I believe, are the best spiritual warfare uh, text in the Bible. You guys familiar with Ephesians 6? We did a study on it a number of years ago when we were working through uh, Ephesians, and you can still download that. You can go online and listen to those. I did a two-part, and Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, C.S. Lewis, once again, C.S. Lewis says uh, in his introduction to the Screw Tape Letters. Anybody here ever read the Screw Tape Letters? Fascinating uh, writing, and what what it is is that it's a senior demon uh, discipling a junior demon in how to mess with you. Is really what it's about, and he kind of gives you this kind of backdrop of what the enemy is up to. And so what he says here in this introduction, there are two equal and opposite mistakes people fall into when it comes to the devil. Here, here they are. There is superstition and superstition. Substition is underbelief. Superstition is overbelief. Let's take each one of these very quickly. Underbelief, that's the first one, is to blame him for nothing, just to kind of believe that he doesn't exist, he's nowhere to be found, very passive. In our modern Western world, really believes everything has a natural cause and a scientific explanation. So we tend to believe crime, violence, greed, racism, war, cruelty all have a natural cause. I don't know if you listen, but when we have a lot of bad things happen, which happens all the time, we tend to go to, well, it's, their, it's the DNA. It's how they were created. You know, it's how they were made. It's, it's chromosomes. Or we'll, we'll blame circumstances. Well, look at the neighborhood they live in. No wonder they're the way they are. Or we, we blame conditioning. So chromosomes, circumstances, or conditioning. Well, you know, their parents were pretty mean. That's why they are the, what they are. And I'm not denying that those don't have some sort of influence in your life. They don't control you. They do have influence, but what our society fails to see is that there's a greater influence, and it's called society, which is God ignoring. That contributes to the unraveling of our culture and our society, but also our own sinful nature. We don't want to have anything to do with God. That's the default mode of our hearts. The Bible says that. And then also there's this uh, demonic this satanic, uh, this demonic presence. And until you realize this, that there's something much deeper going on, you'll not understand evil's depth, pervasiveness, and its intractability, its stubbornness, and you're going to miss the supernatural, demonic contribution to our problems. Um, and that's why it says in Ephesians 6.12, let me read it to you he says for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood so what he's saying is that you know your marriage problems they're just not about your marriage they're not just about your spouse and you and you and her not getting along or you and him not getting along there's something deeper here understand that it's not it's more than just flesh and blood for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So it's, you know those financial problems? There's, there's something much deeper. There's something much deeper that could be working. I mean, yeah, you, you do need to be responsible, and yeah, you need to live by biblical principles. But, but there's much deeper issues happening here. you got a sinful nature. you got a society that promotes what it promotes you know, to to draw you away from good, responsible living, and then you've got an enemy that's after you. He's gunning for you. He's working in your life. And that's what it's saying, and that's so important. Um, Let me talk to you just about that just a little bit. Anytime I deal with a topic like this, I'm so thankful for those that uh, come in here. uh, Where is she sitting? She was in here walking this morning and praying. Uh, she was sitting in here somewhere. Oh, yeah, right there. Thank you for coming in and praying before the service. You guys don't have, probably don't have any idea how important it is that, that we pray here on Sunday mornings. And we have people that pray for us and pray for this service. I mean, even as I'm preparing for this this last week, um, I have an overwhelming sense that it, I just feel a sense of oppression. When you deal with the enemy, there's almost a counterattack. I'm not trying to freak you out about this, but I've seen it time and time again. When we started Desert Breeze, and I'm not typically a depressed person, but when we started Desert Breeze, I experienced three months of heavy depression within the first six months of starting Desert Breeze. Do you think the enemy was uh, trying to do something there? He knew what was gonna happen. And I didn't realize it until someone brought it to my attention. I don't know if it was the Holy, Holy Spirit or somebody said something. And then I had someone pray for me, and it was almost like that, it broke it was crazy it was flat out crazy I see it happen many times when I do funerals or 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 weddings There's a demonic presence I've come into services before and almost have a sense through discernment And I don't have the most discernment in the world sometimes I have to rely on others but there's sometimes there's just some kind of interference some sort of demonic thing going on in someone's life I've gone into hospital rooms and have a sense of that now let me just say that Praise God, we have the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to go against that stuff. But you need to be aware of it. And that's one of those elements, you know. And I understand, depression certainly can come on physiologically, relationally, you know, psychologically, the things we think. But don't, don't forget, there's a demonic part of that too. And... Um, de- uh, Christians can't be demon-possessed, but they can be oppressed. And by the way, I've cast out a few demons in people's lives that were not Christians, and you go toe-to-toe with him, you know he is alive and well on planet Earth. And if you're not, have a good understanding of who Jesus is. By the way, when Jesus would walk in, read the Gospel of Mark. When he walks in, there's demonic manifestations. They're freaking out because they know who he is. So when you come in the name of Jesus through the blood of Christ and all that he represents, it freaks out demons. Believe me, I've seen that happen in those kind of settings. I believe he's extremely subtle here in America today because we just don't give him any credit. We don't want to think about him. And I bet there's more demonic activity than what we would care to even deal with in certain settings. I see it particularly a lot of times in people's lives through the times of worship. Because uh, demons, demonic activity, demonic presence cannot handle, cannot handle when we give glory to the name of Jesus. And so it's pretty, it's, it's interesting stuff. You don't need to be frightened by it, but it's real. And the, the tendency is to just play it all down. And, uh, and I know too well as a pastor in helping people work through their issues that he he is alive and well on planet Earth. And then the next is the overbelief. So as I talked about being aware, I don't want you to be on kind of this demon hunt, like he's behind every bush. And, because, I, I mean, I've had problems. I, I mean, I've had friends who've had problems. They said, well, they wanted to go on a mission trip and they couldn't go because Satan had attacked their finances. And, and I wanted to say, no, I don't think he's attacked your finances. I think you're just irresponsible with your finances. And there's certainly an element to that. But uh, you don't have a budget, and you're not, and, and you don't have a, you know, you don't, you're not keeping good records, and you don't know what true wealth is, and therefore you're susceptible to our culture's impulsive, compulsive spending habits, and uh, and so therefore you lack self-control in your life, and you're not being generous with your finances, uh, because through that God blesses you. In that, so those there's much more to it, and there's certainly biblical principles, but there's also that demonic element. So, so beware of overbelief. By the way, let me just say, things are going to get a whole lot worse here in America. It, it, we're heading in that direction. And so, here's this is no time to retreat. It's time to draw close to our savior and let our light shine before men so that they can see our good deeds and glorify our father in heaven. When does light shine the brightest? When it's the darkest. It's going to get dark. It's going to get much darker than what it is right now. And yet I believe and I'm convinced we have the answers through Jesus Christ. And we can let our light shine. We can grow in our relationship with Christ. We can attract and show people our Savior because people are going to become more and more desperate for our Savior. And so that's, that's all part of it. That's how we, we overcome the darkness around us is by being light in this dark world, Matthew 6 or Matthew 5, 16. So overbelief is to blame him for everything. That's more of a paranoia. And, um, and let me read to you another text here. And I found this interesting. This kind of takes us into the next part. This is an important next part. Um, Ephesians um, 4, 26 through 27, he says, Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do you know what he says next? Anybody? Do not give the devil a foothold. Huh? Do not give the devil a foothold and give no opportunity. So here's what, he, here's what I believe. We can understand from this. Overbelief will cause you to miss the fact that really the only footholds the devil has in you are the animosity, the unresolved anger and bitterness. We give him a foothold. But also, we're going to see, we saw in our text here, also our pride and worry. So, overbelief will cause you to miss the fact that the only st- footholds the devil has in you are the animosity, pride, and worry you entertain in your heart. If you don't deal with that, you're giving the devil a foothold into your life. Satan doesn't leave fang marks on your flesh, but lies in your heart. John 8 31 and 32, Jesus said, You will know the truth. And the truth will do what? It'll set you free. He says, by this all men will know you're my disciples. If you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. If you continue in his word, you are his disciples, and you will know the truth. So it's not just intellectually coherent, knowing the truth, knowing some Bible verses. Existentially compelling. It's moving. It's during God's word, God's presence, God's promises are real to your heart. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, of course. And so as that begins to take place, to the degree you live in the reality of the truth is to the degree you experience freedom. Now let me ask you this, are you experiencing freedom in your life? There's amazing freedom in Jesus. To the degree that you believe a lie is to the degree you're going to experience bondage. A lie believed to be true will affect your life as if it were true. So that's the reason why we need to know the truth. And you dispel this darkness, this lie through the truth. And one of the ways I'm able to see it is the freedom that I'm experiencing. Am I experiencing more love, joy, peace, patience? What kind of a person am I? How am I to hang out with? Do people enjoy being around me? And that goes back to, we're going to look at it, this whole idea of humility. That if I'm living in the freedom, I, I should be probably the most delightful person to hang out with. Even in the midst of the darkness around me, my life should shine bright. And people ought to look at my life and say, wow, I want what you have. How do you do that? See, that's, the, that's that the truth that sets, sets us free. There's much more to that. Now, let's talk about this. The devil works through our own sinful heart. So the art of war involves knowing there's a devil, there are two equal and opposite mistakes about the devil, and then the devil works through our own sinful heart. Now, what would be absolutely the worst thing that could happen to you in life? What would be absolutely the worst thing that could happen to you? To have God oppose you. That would be absolutely the worst thing. And so what we read in our text is that God opposes who? The proud. So if that's the absolutely worst thing that could happen to you is for him to oppose you, you don't want God to oppose you. You want God to be for you. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to who? The humble. So the absolutely best thing would be that you would experience God's grace, God's empowering presence in your life, enabling you to be what he wants you to be, to do what he wants you to do. His favor, his favor to know that he is for you and not against you. You can face anything when you, when you have his favor. And, um, and so it requires that we be humble. Now, let's talk about pride and let's talk about anxiety. Here's a couple of the footholds that he deals with that we give to the enemy. Pride is any resistance to the grace of God. There are really only three responses to God's grace. You can receive it or you can reject it and you can reject it in two ways. Here's the two ways that we reject God's grace. I'm too good for God's grace. I'm too bad for God's grace. Those are the two ways. I'm too good for God's grace. I'm too bad for God's grace. Let's take the first one. I'm too good for God's grace. That's an attitude of superiority. I'm not that bad, and God's not that mad. Okay, that's kind of the, the general consensus in our society today. Um, and I'm meeting the standards. And if you were to ask most Americans, you know, is there heaven and hell, they would say, yeah, there there is. And then if you were to ask them, are, which one are you going to, what would you think the majority of Americans would say? Most would say that they're going to heaven. And then if you were to ask them, what makes you think you're going to heaven, what would they say? I'm basically a good person. What would you, you know, what would you say in response to that based on what the Bible teaches? Is anybody basically a good person? No, actually, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I've got it there written, Romans 3.23 and this is what the Bible says, is that we fail to live our lives in such a way that we would put God on display, that he is more desirable and more satisfying than all that life could give or death could ever take away. We fail to do that. And We do that daily. He says we all, we all fall short of the glory. We fail to live our life in such a way that people would infer from our lives, wow, God is unbelievably satisfying to that person. So we all do it. He says, well, fall short of that. And and by the way, all the other sins, sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with with Christ, when we don't find our satisfaction in Him. That's why we sin. That's why we're ugly. That's why we're mean. That's why we're filled with pride and and all these different things. Now, this is what's interesting about our culture today. Uh, Psalm 36.2 is a a great description of that. Let me read this verse and see if this is not true of our culture and also of many uh, churches in our culture today, and we're heading in this direction. There is no fear of God before his eyes, talking about the wicked, so fear of God is that sense of wonder, just living in wonder of the fact that he's my dad, he's the creator, he's got me covered, he is for me and not against me, he loves me. There is no fear of God before their eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out or hated. Tell me I'm good. Thanks. I wish I could get my wife just to just to tell me how good I am. Ray, you're so wonderful. You're the most wonderful man I've ever been around. Wake up. And actually, she, you know, she does tell me that she loves me, and she has some really, she speaks really, you know, some great words to me. And yet, and yet... She is not bashful to tell me, you're a jerk. <laughs> and, and I need to hear that. And, 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 and it it validates her love for me in so many different ways. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And so we live in a society today, we just want to be stroked. Tell me I feel good. Tell me I'm a good guy. And the Bible says you, you can flatter yourself to the point where you don't even see your sinfulness. Do you hear that? For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out or hated, right all the way to hell. That's our culture. That's the reason why I said that grace really has two parts. I'm a sinner. I'm more I'm more sinful than I ever dared to think. I was so sinful, Jesus had to die for me. But don't stop there. But I'm more loved than I ever dared to dream. He loved me so much, He wanted to die for me. You hear the combination? You hear the balance? You have to have both. You have to have both. That's grace. That's true grace. To the degree I understand my sinfulness, to the degree that I embrace grace and I love grace. Grace has. Depth and meaning and purpose in my life. He has rescued me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's sweet because you understand your lostness. And it's so sweet. It's good. That's all part of it. Okay. Where was I going with that? Oh, I'm too good. And I'm too bad. Here's the next one. I'm I'm too bad for God's grace. So we need to hear, we need to understand that it's by God's grace, and so we gotta eliminate the superiority. I'm desperate for him. But, but there's the, the, other, the flip side. I'm too bad for God's grace, inferiority. God could never receive me because of what I've done or what has been done to me. I have to clean myself up. Did you know that when you present the gospel to most people in America today, that's what they're thinking? They're thinking moralism. Oh, I've gotta perform. I've gotta perform. I'm failing the standards, so I've gotta live up to the standards. So the first one that I'm too good for God's grace is that I'm meeting the standards already. I'm good enough. God has to save me. The Bible says, no, you're not. And then this one is, I'm failing the standards, so I I need to live up to the standards. Romans 6.23, it says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, you you don't earn a gift, you embrace it. You can't achieve it. You just accept it. How many have ever had anybody uh, say this to you? Um, they've, they've said to you, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. Show of hands. This is what C.S. Lewis says. If God forgives us, we must forgive ourselves. Otherwise, it's like setting up ourselves as a higher tribunal than him. See, when someone says, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself, they have failed an idol whose approval is more important to them than God's. It it could be you're living for your parents' approval as opposed to God's approval, and you failed them, and therefore you can't forgive yourself, but He's already forgiven you, and you don't understand Understand that, and that's that's a little bit of this. I gave you some verses. You can study this more on your own. Luke fifteen eleven through thirty two talk about the prodigal sons, and you see this in both of their lives. Both of them trying to earn their approval with with the father. And uh, if if the grace of God here's my point. If the grace of God comes to you and doesn't amaze you, if it doesn't thrill you, it's pride. You've, you're falling into one of those two categories. I'm too good for God's grace. I'm too bad for God's grace. If it doesn't thrill you, you're probably in one of those two. So let's just talk about this real quick. I was sitting down with my wife this last week and we were talking about this and let me just walk you through some of these, kind of some of my journaling as I was walking with this idea of pride. Pride is self-absorption. It's in, uh, C.S. Lewis calls it an endless unsmiling concentration on self. So self-absorption, self-centeredness makes everything else a means to an end. And it becomes really more about my personal freedom and happiness. That's our society we live in. It's about my personal freedom and happiness. What about truth? Oh, and what about community? What about other people in this community? We don't ask those questions. And that's the reason why we see our, our society heading in the direction that it's heading. And what's interesting about uh, self centeredness is that you can be a very, very good person out of self centeredness and a very, very bad person based on self-centeredness. We can take, you can take bad people and turn them into good people and still doing that through reinforcing their, their own self-centeredness and still making it about them. So what is the cause of this self-absorption? We were made to walk with God in the garden of the day, in, in the garden, in the cool of the day, and to find all the acceptance, security, and significance we would ever need in Him. But because we turned away from God, that spiritual alienation immediately gives us a psychological alienation and emptiness inside. And because we exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve created things more than the Creator, it creates all of this emotional emptiness, and this, it's manifested through insensitivity. I become commanding and condemning and condescending. I become hypersensitive, defensive when, when confronted, always getting my feelings hurt. I become envious and jealous and bitterness and cynicism and sarcasm and fault-finding and impatience and anxiety and stress and worry. are all part of that. If you look at anxiety, and that's what we're going to talk about in just a moment, anxiety is a, is, is a sign, inordinate anxiety is a sign of a collapsing God, counterfeit God. That's what you're stressing out over, because you put your heart into this thing. and It's not working out the way you thought it should. And so, what is humility? Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It is a blessed self-forgetfulness, and nothing will knock you out of your self-absorption like an experience of the beauty and the glory of Christ, see when you meet a truly humble person, what you're going to notice is how content they are, how happy they are, and how incredibly genuinely interested they are in you. Why would they? Why would they be that way? Because they already have their treasure. They have Him, and out of that overflow in their lives, they're able to to minister to others. So a truly humble person is so satisfied with the grace of Christ that they're not thinking about themselves. So when it says, clothe yourselves with humility, it means you don't wait for it to happen, to happen to you, but you begin to put it on. You apply the truths of grace to your heart, specific to where your heart is most restless. So this is what I do. I'll, I'll be honest with you. When I'm driving by another church, and I go, what? That church? That church? They don't even preach the gospel. Look at how they're growing. What is that? That's envy. That's envy. What is that telling me about myself? I'm a sinner. I've misplaced my identity. I'm not finding my satisfaction in Jesus and who I am in Him. Regardless of what happens in this church, I should be tickled to death and pray. And by the way, I've gotten beyond that, and I pray for every church in the community. When I drive by, I'm praying for the churches down the street. And even those that I don't believe that they're preaching the gospel, God, help them, minister to them, show yourself to them. Praise God, I've gotten to be able to work through that. But man, in the early days, I used to really struggle with that stuff. And God began to reveal to me, I need to meet you right where you have that envy or anxiety. Let's take it to the anxiety part. Because that's, that's where it can even manifest, too. So anxiety is often, often failure to see how much God loves and cares for you. He's, uh, how much does God care for you? How much does God care for you? Look at, uh, you don't need to look there, but Romans 5, 8 through 10. This is a wonderful text. He says, while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. And then it goes on. It doesn't stop there. So while you're a sinner, he died for you. He says, oh, by the way, now that you're his son and daughter, even more so is he going to give life to you. That's crazy. If he died for you while you were a sinner, now that you're his son and daughter, oh, my goodness, you're going to have life unlike you've ever experienced before. That's what those verses tell us. So. Do you know what it's like to be mistrusted by someone you've done everything for? Anybody? Can you relate to that? You've gone out of your way to build credibility with your performance over time to earn their trust and they shove it back in your face. If you're worried inordinately, that's exactly what you're doing to God. Anxiety is a daily statement to God, I don't think you have my best interest in mind. Two things to do with anxiety. First of all, humble yourself before the mighty hand of God because worry is overconfidence in your own opinion, in your own perspective. You think you know how things should go. You must learn to say, and this is what I've learned over time, to say to God in the midst of negative circumstances, I don't know what's going on, This seems a little random and out of control, but God, I know, I know you have proved to me through the cross, you desire what is best for me. Not only do you desire what is best for me, you know what is best for me. And not only do you know what is best for me, you're gonna do what is best for me. And so I trust in you with all of my heart. I do not lean upon my own understanding. In all of my ways, I will acknowledge you and you will direct my path. I submit to you. I am going to walk by faith and not by sight as it tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. And then the next thing we've got to do is casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What does that mean? Literally, the word cast means to throw once and for all. It's in the Greek eris tense, which is a once-for-all thing. Cast is a fishing term. Of course, Peter was a fisherman, and it wasn't like the rod and reel. It was the nets, and they would have to really throw them, and they were heavy, and they were hard. So it took a lot of, a lot of strength There's almost a a violence to it. Yeah! And then it would sink down below the water. That's what he's talking about here. And it doesn't mean that you never bring it up again, but it's a once and for all thing. This is what begins to take place when you've done this. And this is what you want, is that no longer do your anxieties, and this is what he's saying, don't let your anxieties dominate your solitude. Let God dominate your solitude. Once and for all, give them to Him And then let your Savior walk with you throughout the day. Remember who He is. Focus in on Him. Psalm 55, 22, cast your burdens upon the Lord and He will sustain you. He will not allow the righteous to be shaken. And then Philippians 4, 6 through 7, it says, Don't be anxious about anything but in everything with prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, just one quick last lesson here. What you daydream about in your spare time is what you ultimately are worshiping and serving. So where does your mind immediately go to when it is free to go to anything, when nothing else is demanding your immediate attention? What do you do in your solitude? Bishop William Temple said, your, your religion is what you do in your solitude. And so what he's saying here is give those things to God and let him dominate your solitude. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you do that, he will dominate your solitude. And you'll be able to experience the freedom that only he can bring. This is what I've learned in time, and this is part of it. When you walk into a room and there's darkness, don't curse the darkness. Go over to the wall, flip on the light. Light dispels darkness. So the more you turn your eyes upon Jesus and you know that he cares for you, the more it will dispel the darkness in your life. Turn on the light. Focus on him. I, I came up from a more Pentecostal background where they would curse, you know, Satan, get out of here. And, you know, they'd do all that stuff. Don't do that. Focus on him. You worship him and his presence. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures evermore. The darkness will flee. Has to. In his presence. Last point, right here on your notes. We'll pray. We have an adversary, and we are no match for him, but he is no match for our Savior. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. <laughs> what amazing truth that brings freedom to our lives. And God, we, we know there's a devil. We know that there's this tendency for us to, to fall into uh, one extreme or the other. We don't want to go into either one of these extremes, We want to have a balanced perspective and we want to realize, God, that it's through our own sinful heart that we give access to him. So God, help us to deal with the pride in our lives. May we humble ourselves before you, as it says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. Help us to do that, God, and that you will exalt us and teach us what that means this next week to cast our cares on you, our anxieties on you because you care for us. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you.